BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. heard a lot about how COVID-19 is disproportionately affecting people of color. Just repeating the facts of those disparities can actually normalize them. But they aren't natural. They're a direct product of a history of racism and inequality that's playing out in devastating ways right now. So it's more important than ever to explore that history and the white supremacy and violence that was a part of California's origin story. On today's California Report magazine, we're going to do just that by bringing you stories we reported as part of a collaboration with the ACLU of Northern California and others. It's called Gold Chains, The Hidden History of Slavery in California. It's a project that uncovers stories of resilience, courageous African-American and Native American people who challenged their brutal treatment in early California history. You take a Daniel Blue with everything to lose and very little to gain. And that that speaks to a strength of character that I like to think came from the church. You know, it's a sad story. That's that's our story. And and it's like it didn't happen a thousand years ago, yesterday for us. I'm Sasha Coca and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Now, you may not know that California's first governor, a guy named Peter Hardiman Burnett, was a Southerner who pushed for the exclusion of blacks and immigrants from the state. He also called for the extermination of Native Americans. And there were a lot of pro-slavery legislators in the early days of California's history, too. Now, even though California joined the Union as a free state back in 1850, that didn't mean slavery didn't exist here. Native Americans were often held as indentured servants, paid very little or nothing at all. And as gold rush prospectors flocked to the state, African-American slaves sometimes came too, and they didn't always gain their freedom when they crossed the state line. Fugitive slave laws were frequently upheld here in California, giving slave catchers license to capture African-Americans and bring them back to slave states. Reporter Asala Sanapur is going to bring us a story now about the very last slavery case in California. It's a story that starts in what was once rural Sacramento. And just a note, like all the stories on today's show, she reported it before shelter-in-place orders came down. sitting in the first row of St. Andrew's African Methodist Episcopal Church, right up close so I can hear the choir. All around me, pews are filled with worshipers, mostly older Black folks, 
and many have been coming here for generations. St. Andrews is the first African-American church on the West Coast. Good morning, St. Andrews. St. Andrews is the best kept secret in the entire city of Sacramento. This is Reverend Philip R. Cousin Jr. We were organized prior to statehood, so that gives us a, a bit of a foothold here. St. Andrews was founded in 1850, a few months before California entered the Union as a free state. But many African Americans were still brought here as slaves during the gold rush. This church was created by them. It was established by free and former slave people of color who come into an area and the first thing that is done is to establish a community. And at the center of that community is always a church. And the man at the center of that church, the man who founded it, was named Daniel Blue. He's not someone they tell you about in school, but his story altered the course of California history. Daniel Blue was a former slave from Kentucky, who came to California as a free man and made a fortune mining on the Sacramento River. He opened a laundry and bought a house, right next door to the pro-slavery governor. Unafraid, he started the church and held its first service in his basement. You take a Daniel Blue with everything to lose and very little to gain by putting himself out in the way that he did in this community, and yet that is what he did by choice. And that, that speaks to a strength of character that I like to think came from the church. In the church, Daniel Blue even opened a school for Black and Native American children, soliciting money when the state refused to fund it. And so St. Andrews became ground zero for anti-slavery and social justice activism. In Sacramento, it was St. Andrews that was able to pull together a coalition of people of color and say, look, we can go to the court and demand these rights. We can go to the state and demand to be counted as citizens. As the first black church in California, it became the model for other African Methodist Episcopal churches around the state. In a word, Daniel Blue's influence was... Revolutionary. But Daniel Blue left another mark that even the Reverend didn't know about. He freed California's last known slave. I wonder how we can know so little about a man with such a huge impact so to learn more, I came here, to the Center for Sacramento History. Kim Hayden is an archivist who's helping me sift through these hundred-year-old court records. We have things like this 1864 probate case, which is the actual file written in 1864. So this is the case. The case is People v. Gammon in the matter of guardianship of Ada, a.k.a. Edith. Edith was a 12-year-old slave brought to rural Sacramento from Missouri. Walter Gammon was a local farmer who illegally bought her. This is 1864. It's nearly 15 years after California became a free state. Witnesses say Gammon beat Edith and left her without care or clothing. But somehow Daniel Blue heard about Edith, so he filed a petition in county court which forced Gammon to bring the girl to the judge. This is the habeas corpus for her reading. We command you that you have the body of Ada, 
or Ada, a colored female child by you in response, Gammon, the slave owner, said Edith was there, quote, of her own free will. And it was such a typical slaveholder response. Like, oh, I'm taking care of her. I provide for her. I'm giving her room and board. I feed her. I clothe her, um, which is what like southern slaveholders would say. Like, what would they have without us? So Daniel Blue requested that he become Edith's legal guardian. And the judge ruled in his favor, saying that Gammon had, quote, unlawfully and illegally detained and restrained Edith. What makes this case so significant is the timing. Because only a year before Daniel Blue's petition to the state courts, California lifted a law prohibiting African-Americans from testifying. So Daniel Blue saw an opportunity and he took it. And those Black witnesses, the people who detailed how Edith was abused, were able to testify on a young slave's behalf. I wanted to know whether Daniel Blue was celebrated in his own time by the people in his community. And once again, the Center for Sacramento History held the answer. Archivist Kim Hayden pulls out a leather-bound newspaper from the dusty archives. We're looking for Daniel Blue's obituary. Oh, there he is, there it is. It's titled, An Old Man Gone. An Old Man Gone. For a Sacramentan to have said he did not know Uncle Daniel Blue was to argue his ignorance of the city and its people. The obituary describes Daniel Blue's accomplishments, intellect, how he was beloved by black and white people alike. But there's no mention of how he freed a little girl from slavery. I later learned that the 1870 census lists a woman in Sacramento named Ada, Edith's nickname. She's 19 years old, which is the same age Edith would have been. She's married to an African-American man, and they have a one-year-old son. He has been so good. He has been so good to me. In my darkest hour. In my darkest I wasn't able to reach Edith or Daniel Blue's living descendants for this story. But I can see his legacy lives on with St. Andrews and the worshipers who come together each week. Reverend Cousin says together they're carrying out Daniel Blue's vision of community, education, and social action. Now he says it's all about voting. Goodness knows the emphasis this year ought to be on voting. It cannot be on anything else other than voting. Whatever we do out there is an expression of what we have learned and profess to believe in here. And so we encourage everyone to participate at every level in the life of the community. And certainly that means exercising the right to vote, particularly since that is not a right that has been ours for a very long time. Reverend Cousin says voting is the antithesis of standing around and waiting for something to happen. Voting is doing it, much like establishing the first black church in California or adopting a little girl out of slavery. For the California Report, I'm Asala Sanapur in Sacramento.
This is the California Report magazine. Today we're exploring California's hidden history of slavery and the racial violence that was part of California's origin story. Indigenous people were used as indentured servants in the early days of California's statehood. And of course, they were the victims of genocide. A couple months ago, I traveled to Lake County to meet a man who knows about that history firsthand. Clayton Duncan pulls his car off a rutted road near the town of Upper Lake in Lake County. He's got shoulder-length salt and pepper hair, and he's wearing a black t-shirt that says, I'm not your mascot. He gets out of the car, lights a bundle of dried sage, and starts to smudge, fanning the smoke towards a grassy hillside. I'm just going to uh, just burn a little bit of this stuff. I can imagine my great-grandmother telling this story over and over and over. She was here. Clayton's great-grandmother, Lucy Moore, was one of the few survivors of a massacre here back in 1850 when hundreds of Pomo Indians were killed by U.S. soldiers. All her cousins and grandpas and grandmas, they were all just laying there dead. The water was all just full of blood, you know, and she gets up, a six-year-old girl, and sees all this, her family. He's here today to remember that awful day at this tree-covered hill called Bloody Island. It used to be an actual island, although the water that surrounded it has now been drained away. For centuries, Pomo people came here to fish and gather medicinal plants and tule reeds. Clayton slides a CD into his car stereo and rolls down the windows so a recording of his mom, Mildred Duncan, echoes off the hillside. I get emotional when I think about this. Mildred isn't alive anymore, but in this recording he made of her, set to music, she's telling part of her grandma Lucy's story. Everybody, when she said she was hiding in the tulis, she was breathing through a straw. That straw, made out of a hollowed-out tule reed, was part of a game kids used to play in the marsh, and it saved Lucy's life. That game, a hide-and-seek game that the kids played, then you could get underwater and you breathe through those reeds, you know, and hide. And these uh, little brown kids, they disappear in the water, you know, in a the, in the, the tule patch, you know. And, and was breeding under the, with the tule while everybody was getting massacred. Clayton's cousin, Lisa Peake, is here too. She's smudging with an eagle feather, waving it to fan the smoke from the sage. Like I get sad and emotional. So I just like, I pray. I smudge and pray when I come here. My grandparents, they were dead before I was even born, so I don't even know, but I feel it inside a lot. So I know when they say blood memory. She never met their great-grandma Lucy, but Clayton did. I have a picture. How old might have she been? This is over 100. She's over 100, and she's, uh, look at her hair. Her hair is still jet black. Wow. So... You were born in... April 6, 1950. She was 106. And so mom said uh, she was talking our language, you know, and telling me, you know, what to do, you know, go do this, go do that. And I would just, I would do the things she said. So I understood that language. And then every time she went out and prayed, uh, she had cataracts, so she couldn't see good. So I'd run outside, grab grandma by the hand, you know, and bring her inside. I was like her little eyes, you know. And uh, so I feel that's why out of our whole family, I took this on. 
and I'm thinking she told me to, you know. <laughs> but how incredible that she lived to 110 yeah. after nearly dying in this massacre. On May 15, 1850, the U.S. Cavalry killed hundreds of Pomo Indians here with muskets and bayonets. They were avenging the death of two white settlers, Andrew Kelsey and Charles Stone. They were cattle ranchers, and they were notoriously cruel to the native population here. Many Pomo were forced to work on their ranch and were often starved and beaten, sometimes even strung up from trees as a form of torture. Clayton's mom talked about the two in that recording she made before she died. Kelsey was his name. Kelsey was his name. It all came to a head after Kelsey lashed a young Pomo boy a hundred times and then shot and killed him. Soon after, Kelsey and Stone were murdered by some Indians who'd had enough of the violence against them. And then the U.S. military retaliated. Little or no resistance was encountered, and the work of butchery was of short duration. This is from an article dated May 28, 1850, published in a newspaper of the time called Daily Alta, California. The shrieks of the slaughtered victims died away. The roar of muskets ceased, and stretched lifeless upon the sod of their native valley were the bleeding bodies of these Indians. No sex nor age was spared. It was the order of extermination fearfully obeyed. But that history got rewritten just three days later in the same newspaper after a military officer questioned the original story. Here's what the new version said. And maintaining an attitude of hostility toward all the whites. In the combat, many of the soldiers were seriously wounded and a number of the Indians killed. The statement that women and children were massacred is wholly unfounded. hungry. What you want? You want a uh, dinosaur eggs? Or uh, you want uh, camel toes? Or you want uh, horse feathers? Or Now Clayton Duncan is 70, and he's raising his own three grandkids, <laughs> who are about the same age he was when his great-grandma Lucy Moore helped raise him. He's figuring out how he'll tell them her story someday. Three babies at the house, man, you know, and I look at them and I'm going, how can anybody feel proud about this? You know, oh, I'm so proud of what my forefathers did. Oh, I'm so proud of what my forefathers wrote. And also, you know, this ain't what our forefathers wanted. Uh, My mom, she says, what's what's wrong with you? You know, how come you always walk around here mad? And what's wrong, you know? And I go, what have they done, man? You know, and, and then she goes, well, let me tell you about grandma. Grandma used to pray, and she forgave, you know, those people, and she lived through it, you know? And so what you got to bitch about, you know? <laughs> and so I start thinking, I go, whoa, man, what an ultimate human being that can really mean it and do that, you know, especially to the people that call themselves the superpower in somebody else's land, you know? And so I thought about it, and I go, man, I, if I was to hurt any white man or do anything like that, uh, I would shame my grandma's prayer. So instead, Clayton has been organizing a sunrise ceremony of forgiveness every May at Bloody Island. People from different tribes gather. So do some locals who are white, like Charmaine Larson. We're all fed, you know, some fake history from the time we're born. 
and that's not right. You know, I don't want to be told lies, and I don't want to believe lies. I want the truth, and and then when I know the truth, I want to help those that are bringing the truth forth, and and stand behind what's real. You know, it's a sad story. That's that's our story, and. And it's like, it didn't happen a thousand years ago, you know? I mean, I was, I got to touch my great grandma's hand. She was holding me, you know? I used to walk around with her. And, and so it's not like uh, it was a thousand years ago, man. It was yesterday for us. This year, Clayton Duncan and his brother are planning to live stream the sunrise ceremony instead of holding a large gathering while people are socially distancing. And now we're going to meet a Native American activist who lives in Marin County. She's best known for causing a massive uproar at the 1973 Academy Awards. Accepting the award for Marlon Brando and the Godfather, Miss Sashin Littlefeather. Sashin Littlefeather got up on stage. Hello, my name is Sashin Littlefeather. And calmly turned down Marlon Brando's best actor accolade for The Godfather. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry. Excuse me. Hollywood was getting rich off racist stereotypes of Native Americans. Sashin was a young activist and a budding actress when Brando asked her to represent him at the Oscars. She appeared in movies like Johnny Firecloud. You know better than that, Jesse. For Johnny to have a choice, you need justice. And justice doesn't live here anymore. After the anger she sparked at the Oscars, Sashin's TV and movie career kind of floundered. But as we're going to hear in this interview with KQED's Chloe Veltman, Sashin's work as an activist took off. My father, an Apache and Yaqui man, met my white mother at a saddle shop in Arizona. And they moved to Salinas, California, because their interracial marriage was illegal in Arizona. When my father beat my mother, he made me watch, as though it were an afternoon bargain matinee. That killed my soul, and not only because I loved my mother, but because I knew I was next. My white grandparents took me in. And then they raised me as a white person. But when I looked in the mirror, I knew I wasn't. I always knew I was Indian, but in those days, back in the 40s and the 50s, everybody wanted to be white. Because everybody in the radio or in the ads and magazines and newspapers. Every, everybody was white. It looked like a Clorox factory. I was kind of a loner. Writing was my outlet. Simple little poems like I slippy and I slidey over everybody's hidey. I'm just a little bar of soap. <laughs> My grandmother, she was very exasperated with me 
for being so clumsy, for falling over my own two feet. I had big feet and I was only nine years old. So I used to sing the song, Oh my darling, oh my darling, oh my darling Clementine, you are lost and gone forever and your shoes are number nine. <laughs> When we used to go into restaurants or whatever, and I used to go hand in hand with my white grandparents, people always looked at us funny. And I could tell, you know, intuitively, that something wasn't right. And then, when I grew older, I went on a car trip to the South with my mother, who was white. And then I found out exactly what was up when I went to use the bathroom. And there was a police officer with a billy club who was looking directly at me. And there was a white bathroom and a black bathroom. And the white officer looked at me and went with the billy club pounding the billy club in his fist. And I thought, out of my best interest to go to the black bathroom. My mother, however, went to the white bathroom, and I can't tell you how much I cried and cried after that experience. And after I had several of those experiences, I knew how blatant racism was, open, alive, and well. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry, excuse me, after refusing that award for Marlon, I went back to school to get a degree in holistic health and nutrition with a minor in Native American medicine. I did a lot of consulting work because medicine people were going into the hospital to treat and pray for their American Indian patients, and much of this was misunderstood by the doctors and the staff. So we needed a group of us to go in and to educate everyone from the CEO down to the janitor about what Native American medicine was all about. We have been oppressed so much from dominant society that we have internalized that oppression. For example, saying, well, you're not Indian enough. You weren't born on the reservation and I was. Oh, you're only half Indian, I'm a full blood. So I'm more Indian than you're Indian. That's internalized oppression. The more that Native American Indian people like myself speak out, the more understanding that there becomes. The truth has got to win out above all the lies that have been told about us by the dominant society. Cheyenne, Apache, Blackfoot Sioux, they're vicious killers, all of them, ain't even human. We're all Indian, of one blood, one mind, and one heart. And uh, eventually I did grow into my feet. Now I wear size 11 narrow. 
And when I go to the shoe store, I just uh, say, I've got room for everybody <laughs> in my shoes. <laughs> that was Sasheen Littlefeather talking with KQED arts and culture reporter Chloe Veltman. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. Our show is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. The California Report's senior editor is Victoria Maleone. Amanda Font is our director, and our technical producer is Rob Spate. We had additional engineering from Seal Muller. Our team also includes Susie Racho and Ariella Markowitz. Special thanks this week to Joanne Martinez. The Gold Chains Project is a collaboration with the ACLU of Northern California, the California Historical Society, Laura Atkins, and the Equal Justice Society. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems, and Hint, fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry, no sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.